Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. All right, are you ready to dive into how the heck business brokers and investment bankers make their money and what you should expect when you're interviewing them as far as how they engage, how they price their engagements, what you can expect from the success fee, what kind of deal activity you can expect. This is exactly what we're diving into today. I'm super pumped because this question I get all the time is, should I hire a business broker and investment banker? And what should I expect for the fees that I'm getting? What kind of service should I expect? And this gentleman, Peter Learman, who's back on the show, is the perfect person to be on the uh, the show to describe this because he is the founder of Axial.net, which is an M&A uh, deal sourcing website. I would say suggest checking it out because it is a lot. Of, there's a lot of power in essentially the platform and how they're facilitating deals. And Peter's going to get into his background a little bit, but the reason that he's on the show is because he partnered up with a company called Firmex where they have not, I think it's the fourth one that they've done, but it's an M&A uh, fee sur- survey where they interview it's hundreds of investment bankers and brokers about how they charge, whether it's a retainer up front, what does their success fee look like and what kind of percentage should you expect, what kind of activity that these intermediaries are handling so you can understand what kind of attention you're going to get. I just was excited because this is just a, essentially we're shining a huge spotlight onto when you're interviewing someone, this is the, you know, the range of options. And now you can judge the answers you're getting from the people you're interviewing to see if it's a right fit. Cause my goal is that you find the right person who's got the right skill sets, who gives you the attention that you want. So they're quarterbacking the Super Bowl of your life that you know that you're going to the right person and you're not having some abnormal deal structure or uh, fee structure and engagement. And you hopefully have the right questions to ask these people to feel confident that you're moving forward in the right direction. And I would suggest that if you want to know more about this stuff, you've probably heard me say this a bunch now. We have an intentional growth, physical in-person boot camp. Yes. Two days in person with 20 other entrepreneurs with um, our partners uh, at Arcona teaching it or we're diving into the five principles Go check out the uh, a curriculum and the bootcamp trailer at arcona.io. There's a link in the show notes. It's 5,000 bucks for the first person and half off for the tickets after that if you want to bring a partner or a key executive. Um, and again, if there's no spots available because we've capped out, then I would suggest reaching out, letting us know because if we can get 10 to, fi- 10 to 20 people, that's that's our, our target um, attendee, is we'll launch another physical bootcamp if enough people are uh, willing to join and commit. So again, let me know, go to arcona.io. And without further ado, here's my episode with Peter. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace. And you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option to just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash? 
The reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term. Whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor, whether that's sell part of it or some of it, essentially just have as many choices as you want. But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the, the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Peter, welcome back, man. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be uh, here. Yeah, I'm just like, I'll tell you what, it's been really, it's really fun having like a familiar face again because we just get to get straight into the meat of this stuff. It's like, yeah, I think we can, uh, the fact that this is your second or third time on, we can jump right into it. I'll have a little bit of your intro in the beginning, but the reason I reached out to you is because I got an update uh, email on your newsletter about the M&A advisory fee structure survey that you've been doing. And I think it's with Firmex is the name of the firm. I'd love to just get like from from your words, kind of an overview of why you're doing the survey, you know, you know how you're about doing it, where's the data coming from? Because I know what the, one of the intent is to dive into what's in it, but like, why don't you just give us the overview of why you're doing it and uh, how you guys got the data? Okay, sure. So the, the reason to do the survey is to try and just put some lines in the sand around how M&A advisors who sell small and medium-sized businesses, how they charge their fees. Uh, how does an M&A advisor get paid? What is the structure? What is the range of fees that they charge? How are those set up? Those are really important questions that business owners want to have answers to. And uh, in some ways, the answers are very diverse. And in some ways, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of similarity. But just putting data around and making that data available to business owners was the reason why we started working on this survey and partnered up with uh, FirmX. It turns out that the survey is also really helpful for M&A advisors because they want to know what their peers are charging, right? <laughs> and I think that there's, in some ways, as much uncertainty or lack of uh, information for them uh, in terms of how they're charging relative to their peers as there is for business owners. So it's 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 ultimately been really well received by both of those audiences mm -hmm. and even owners of businesses who like private equity owners, I think it's helpful for them as they think about hiring a banker to sell a portfolio company. So a lot of people interested in having some good, reasonably reliable information on this. And uh, so that's uh, why we 
began to produce the survey. We get access to the survey responses in two ways. Uh, the first way is through Axial. So Axial is the company that I started about 10 years ago. Axial operates a software platform that privately connects buyers and sellers of small businesses. And our platform is used by professional acquirers to hunt for targets and, and acquisitions. And the platform is used by professional sellers, mostly in the form of M&A advisors, who use our software and our data to drive a better sale outcome for their clients who are the underlying business owner um, deciding to exit. And so um, we have about, about 1,500 sell-side uh, intermediaries who use the Axial platform in That's any awesome. sort of rolling 365-day mm-hmm. period uh, on at least a couple of transactions. And then Firmex, I don't know their customer base uh, as well as I know my own, but certainly work with a lot of M&A uh, advisors who are using the Firmex data room to store documents as part of a, a sales process. So in this survey, we surveyed about 270 middle market uh, sell-side M&A advisors. So that's the sample set, about 270. And really all doing smaller business transactions. Nobody here is a big, fancy Wall Street banker. These are all people selling you know, down the middle, lower middle market mm-hmm. businesses, overwhelmingly between 5 and $50 million in value. A, a few to the to the north of that, but for the most part, this is pure play, lower middle market. Well, which um, I, I've always resonated with you a lot on your target market, right? Because, like, you know, one of the things that I, I again for the listeners that want more of your background, how you and I perceive the middle and lower market, we will have links to our our previous episodes, Peter. But it's making it more efficient, which is knowledge, right, and education, and you know, it's there's so much knowledge about pricing of deals from Wall Street. I mean, you can just go on, you can see that stuff everywhere. And so just the fact that you're making this more transparent will hopefully allow people to understand the value that they're going to get and how to compare. Because, you know, I, and the reason, one of the reasons that I was so excited to have you on the show is like, when we get to the training part where people are like, oh, should I help someone else sell my company? I'm like, and like, I'll do this. And it's just like, I don't even know what else to say, but just don't do that. Yeah. So like, you know, I mean, the working capital adjustment could cost you a couple million bucks. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. the, and, the, and the crazy part is, is people don't know how to buy, you know what I mean? How to engage with this, this uh, service provider, you know, this person that's an intermediary, yet it's so mm-hmm. important. So there, like, it's truly like, I have that so many conversations about like what they do and how they price. And then like, well, what do I get for that? And it's just yeah. this huge black box. So I don't know if you've had that experience as well in your past. Well, I, I, we see a fair amount of, we can sort of see it in the data on the Axial platform. So um, not to go off on a tangent here, so stop me if I run on, but about 90% of transaction activity on the Axial platform is led by a professional intermediary, a sell-side investment banker or business broker who's selling a business and uses our software on behalf of their client, where their client is the business owner with the intent to exit or or execute a pretty significant sort of financial transaction. The other 10% are business owners who have opted to DIY the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they use our same tools, our same data set. They have access to all of that, you know, same tooling and, and, and data that we make available to intermediaries. And the success rates are so much lower when business owners mm-hmm. do it on their own versus when they do it with the help of an intermediary. And I don't think it's because the business owners are, it, it has nothing to do with competency. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with smarts. I think it has everything to do with two things. The first is good 
um, good intermediaries who do good work, who prepare their clients well, who take on assignments carefully, are um, they're students of the trade of selling businesses. They've done it many times. They've done it many more times than almost every entrepreneur. And so they have the benefit of repetition, and that creates a lot of wind at their backs in terms of mm-hmm. knowing how to prepare for and how to execute transactions. The second major issue is that business owners who DIY it don't realize that selling a business is is somewhat of a full time job, and if your if your if your day job is running your company, and then you sign up for a whole nother a whole nother job of of selling your company that you've never done before, by the way, <laughs> that you've never done before, yeah, potentially you never done, right? Yeah, you, you just get stuck. You know, you get stuck. You get stuck really quickly. Things slow down. The process grinds to a halt. Where we see it in the data on Axial is, you know, the business owner will approach the market of buyers. He'll get some interest from buyers. The buyers will sign NDAs, and then the buyers will register a whole set of questions, and the questions are not adequately uh, answered in the offering memorandum or the information memorandum, or there isn't an information memorandum, um, or the information memorandum, you know, is reasonably helpful, but there's a whole array of subsequent questions that buyers have. And then there's, you know, five, 10 buyers asking uh, a range of questions. And that's when you just sort of see, we can literally see it on our platform. You can just sort of see these processes just sort of grind to a halt. Yeah. Because they're like, I don't have that information handy. and I didn't prepare in advance for that. And I've got to run the business Monday to Friday. And I've got all these people asking me questions. So that, you know, that's, um, that, that's part of the challenge mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. definitely just, finding the time to do your day job and, and also try and sell your company. Well, and I think what, what, one of the things that I you're trying to do and a lot of people in this industry are like, let's accelerate the education for everybody so we can accelerate the trust to get to the real heart of the question. And I think one of the things that I get so many times is for the business owners going, how do I even know how to hire an investment banker intermediary? Because like, how does Peter's fee structure work compared to Ryan's fee structure compared to like what, how many, there's so many questions. So when I, when I was thinking about uh, doing this, so I've got the, uh, the report up that we'll, we'll have a link to in the podcast show notes. Mm-hmm. So we can, people can go in and check out this report. But I think instead of just re- listing stats, which we can obviously, you can, you can regurgitate some of the ones that make sense in the, in the context. But I think talking about the different components, Peter, of like, mm-hmm. how do people charge and what are the different variations? We can kind mm-hmm. of just take the report and just get your comments on them because it's the same thing when I've done all these episodes on private equities, like the more people understand it, the more questions they can ask and make sure whether it's right for them. Right. If I don't know if it's right, yeah. you know, certain things are right for certain people in different deals, but kind of getting that transparency and, and putting a light to the different ways that things can be structured. And so when, when I go over to the, when, when I'm looking at the, the PDF report is like the mm-hmm. deal flow, explain what you mean by the deal flow. Cause I think this is an important factor and why the deal flow is important and what what that means um, as it relates to the the survey. Well, the deal flow uh, survey just is is asking the respondent, you know, in any given year, how many businesses does your organization sell, right? And what you see in the lower middle market sort of M&A world is, is, is you, you see a pretty wide range of answers to that question, right? There are mm-hmm. organizations that are selling 40, 50, 60, 70 businesses. That's not just one, you know, individual. Mm-hmm. That's a that's an organization with a variety of managing directors uh, in charge of, of selling businesses. And then you have 
there are very low barriers to entry also in, in being an intermediary. So you as a professional intermediary could leave a big firm, go start your own mm-hmm. firm, and you could sell one or two businesses a year. And if you're successfully selling those businesses and they're of reasonable size, you know, that's a, you know, that's a, you, know, you can, yeah, yeah, exactly. You can make a, a, a pretty good living um, just working for yourself. And so the deal flow is just making, making it clear to the readers of the survey, who are the respondents and what is the, the general size of the firms that they're working for? And do those firms do one to five deals a year or are those, you know, are those firms, you know, doing 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 deals a year. And what you see is that the far and away, the biggest category in the respondents category uh, of respondents are, you know, people doing between one and 10 transactions a year. So less than one a month. Which, which like that'll, this is why I'm super excited to do this here because I have this conversation all the time, every week, like, and why that matters is if I'm hiring Peter in your firm and you're doing 10 deals or like if you normally do 10 and you're doing 15 right now, how much time am I going to get? Like yeah. It's just a very, this is all simple. Yeah. Like people know the implications of this. It's like, okay, are you out of, you know, are you ahead of yourself right now or not? Or am I going to yeah. get, you know, white glove or not? <laughs> yeah. 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 That's definitely true. I mean, I think, you know, what, what, as the investment banks, try to scale up you know their 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 offerings you know they try to deliver a experience to the client where it's like no matter who is working on the transaction you know they're going to get a consistent mm-hmm. experience that's very hard to achieve you know this is a very very people specific business mm-hmm. you know and deal teams matter a lot you know, and so what I definitely encourage is for people to feel like they're hiring a person to help them sell their business, not a firm. Like you don't want to hire Morgan Stanley to, to just as an example, of course, that yep. they're not, they're not a participant in this market, but you know, Schmorgan Manley, yeah. right. If you, let's just say it's Schmorgan <laughs> Manley, right. You know, and, and, and what you don't want to do is hire a firm. You want to hire yeah. a person inside of that firm who seems to be really competent and very interested in working with you. Ideally, you have a certain amount of lead time evaluating one another and getting comfortable with one mm-hmm. another. In other words, you're not sort of entering into a shotgun marriage and, and having that banker represent you two or three or four months before you want to get underway. Ideally, you've, you've met the, uh, that banker and had a chance to spend a little bit of time with them over a a one, two, even yeah. three, four, five year period. Yeah, so. yeah ideally, right? Because they're going to be representing yeah. all of yeah. your most important needs and wants yeah. and your biggest so Super Bowl. Your, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I yeah. think it's it's very similar to like how I always describe hiring an M and A attorney because like they should be leveraging all of their technical specialties in the different areas of their firm. So it's more about the bench and the in the firm, and they put your hand that one person who's kind of like the project manager, you know, representing you at all the different components and. So kind of moving on to then like, okay, that's super helpful for the amount of transactions that, you know, typical firms work with. But then how about like the size of transactions? So like, you know, and I think in your your study, was it like 75% were investment bankers versus brokers? But then Mm -hmm. like, what were the size of, what what are the kind of the typical size and why does that matter? So, So if I just total up the percentages, basically what you see is that about 65% 
of the respondents are selling businesses that are between five and $50 million in value. And there's very, very few that are selling businesses in excess of, of $50 million with any meaningful frequency. There is a big chunk of advisors in the respondent pool that sell sub $5 million businesses, mm-hmm. about 30, a, th- a third sell sub $5 million businesses. Is there a cl- um, correlation where the, those typically are brokers then? So you start to see that like if that percentage, would there be a larger percentage of brokers would be, that would be my yeah. thought. I don't know if that's yeah. the case, but yeah, okay. I think, I, I think that, you know, look, there's no clean, hard rules <laughs> and, and, and lines in the sand in small business M&A um, and lower middle market M&A. But I think that the, um, the brokerage population tends to focus on, you know, 500,000 to $5 million enterprise value mm-hmm. businesses far more frequently than the professional investment banker who tends to have an ability to pursue bigger transaction uh, opportunities. It mm-hmm. really is about your, you know, one of the things that a business owner has to understand is the opportunity cost of these advisors, right? So, you know, to, to your prior question about deal flow, right? It takes time to sell a business. And so uh, an M&A advisor only has so much time each year and can only sell so many businesses. They just, if they take on too much work, they will probably, you know, have lower quality outcomes for themselves mm-hmm. and, and for their clients. And so in any given year, an M&A advisor has to look at, you know, a series of opportunities and say, okay, well, if I take on this assignment, that means that, you know, I only have this many empty, you know, you know, uh, empty rounds in the chamber for other, other assignments. Mm-hmm. And so if, if, a if a sell side advisor has the capacity to, um, track record to be able to sell 20, 30, $40 million businesses, it's tough for them to get comfortable taking on a $5 million or $10 million assignment again and again and again, because they're sadly, they take easily as much time. It's not like a smaller transaction goes Mm -hmm. faster Mm -hmm. and you can just sort of, you know, stamp them out, um, smaller transactions, oftentimes can be even more time intensive for a variety more of reasons complicated, we, less we can educated. get into. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and I had a good yeah. riff on that line the last episode where, you know, it's once you get to the certain education of the, of the, as an advisor, it's just as easy to add an extra zero and you're speaking generally to more sophisticated people that can do complicated deals faster. <laughs> so yeah. It's just, it's just super interesting. And I, and I think, but it, again, this is all for the listeners that are, are, are paying attention. Like, the questions that they're asking these people just to understand who's sitting across because you like, you know, there are certain people that might just not want to do that for various reasons or they, you know, it's the right combination of only a couple of people in their firm and they like, you know, 10, $20 million deals. It's just kind of trying to understand what's in front of you. And then yeah. that kind of leads Peter to the, I think one of the, the, the great, uh, the, the thing that has a lot of ambiguity around it is the, the fee structure of how these people go about. So why don't you kind of speak to the different ways that people can engage with these intermediaries and then, and then we can kind of talk about the nuances of them. I think the most important thing for, for anybody who's in the business owner seat and thinking about hiring an M&A advisor is, you know, the, the right pricing structure for a small to mid-sized business is almost always like a two-part pricing model where there's a certain fee which is charged, it's sometimes referred to as like a work fee. And it takes the form of either a retainer or it's a, an hourly, uh, just, you know, bi- you know bill- billable hours. But it's essentially a work fee, which helps to 
do a couple of things for the relationship that the business owner has with, with, with the advisor. The first is it just helps the advisor, you know, know that the business owner is serious about, you know, the transaction mm-hmm. and they're not just taking a flyer and, and seeing, you know, if it works out. The second reason that it helps is because the, you know, again, the, the M&A advisor has real opportunity costs and they want to make sure that they're working with someone who's genuinely interested in selling their company and isn't just sort of like, hey, if you find me something, great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this two-part pricing structure that tends to be what I think, you know, any good intermediary, pretty you common. know, yeah. it's pretty common. And, yeah. and that's a, a work fee, which is some form of either retainer or billable hours up front. And then a transaction fee, which only is coming into focus and being paid out uh, based upon a transaction successfully closing. And, you know, if a business owner is being pitched a fixed, you know, upfront fee with no contingency fee, that's, I'm comfortable going on the record saying that that's a pretty big red flag Mm -hmm. because, you know, that basically means that the sell side advisor is, you know, saying, we don't want to take any risk with you as part of this transaction. We want you to pay us a significant fixed, you know, fee and regardless of outcome. And that's not in keeping with market norms. There's nothing per se wrong with that. But, but just, just when you, but just even just you say, <laughs> I was just going to say, it, even you just it, saying it out loud yeah, it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Hey, Peter, yeah. I'm going to charge you 250 grand regardless of what happens. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's not, it's not the way this world does business. Should work. So, yes. Exactly. And so I think, you know, how much do they charge you in retainer dollars up front? Is it a fixed fee? Is it a monthly retainer or quarterly retainer? Is it billable hours? All those things, there's a lot more gray area there and more reason, more room to negotiate and more mm-hmm. sort of shades of gray that I find to be all reasonable. But anybody who's just sort of charging you a big six figure upfront fee or even a high five figure upfront fee mm-hmm. is, you know, is, is, is not the right partner for you in, in the process. Well, I think what's interesting about it, because like, and by the way, that this is all in the, again, in the, this uh, survey for people, if they want to go look at the breakdown of each of those uh, things that Peter just mentioned, but like, when you're saying it's negotiable, it's like, depending on, like, if you think about if the person, if the intermediary typically takes on five people and they're looking on, you know, and all of a sudden they're looking to bring on a six and be a little bit above and beyond their comfort level. Maybe there's a, Hey, like, negotiation on that first part. But the whole point, like you said, is the goal is to make sure that everybody's aligned. Right. I mean, like, cause I mean, how yeah. much work is needed? I mean, I think about like how much we, I think about how much we do Peter, when we onboard a client into fractional CFO services and we significantly underestimated the amount of cleanup work <laughs> we have to do with every single client before we can even get to the out year projections. And I'm like, I couldn't yeah. imagine trying to sell a company 90 days, let alone just onboard them into the right model. So like the, it's, it's also fair to expect someone to get compensated for the hard work that they're going to probably build in the getting that clean, the story told in the data room set up. <laughs> yeah. Look, it, it, a lot of it, you know, it depends a lot on, you know, what is the advisor going to do for you prior to engaging with the market of buyers? And what is the condition of the status quo at your business? So, for example, like 
a pretty high-end investment banking service, you know, offering for a business that's, you know, that's preparing for sale is to spend easily, you know, 30 to 60 days just gathering a whole bunch of data from the CFO, the CEO, maybe the VP of sales or the VP of product, you know, maybe just the CEO and the CFO, but just like give us a bunch of financial information, KPIs, how your products work, you know, what are your products? What is the categories that you sell into? Because what, what investment bankers usually will do is put together this information memorandum on your business, which is like a, you know, pretty big document that, that allows a buyer to sort of, after they sign an NDA to, without wasting the time of the CEO running the company, the owner running the company, allows them under confidentiality to sort of say, okay, this is the business. This is what it does. These are the customers that it serves. This is the end markets that it serves, the revenue and by segment and the, the general margin Here's the story. profile. Here's the story, right? Here's the mm-hmm. story. And you, you don't, you don't just, you can't just put that together, you know. You, you know, <laughs> people um, are just writing ten million dollar checks for nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, you can't just put that together. Or if you do put it together and you do a really sloppy job, or there's holes in it, it ends up doing one of it. Kind of, and it typically ends up backfiring in one of two ways: either the CEO has to spend a huge amount of time answering questions one off because the questions are not sufficiently answered by the document, or there's just so many holes in the story that the buyers don't take the process seriously and say, you know what, I've got other businesses that are interested in being bought where I am an interested buyer and the information's more readily available. I can just, I can see myself more easily successfully transacting with that business owner than I can with this one. Cause there's just more information at the ready. And mm-hmm. so if you don't go through that process, right. And you don't go through that preparation process, you know, you kind of, it's like you can have a lot, you can pay a lot lower retainer, I suppose, but then it kind of bites you further down the sale Mm -hmm. process as the business owner, because you got less stuff pulled together. And so you're starting to get picked away at sort of one question at a time. And so like, like, as, as a seller, it's like, I want, like, if you're my investment banker, I want you to tell one hell of a story that represents everything that I'm doing. Cause like, I wonder if I'll also add a third thing to that, how it backfires is like, let's say the buyer still wants to continue, but the trust is not there because the information is not getting exchanged in a way that is trustworthy. And in order for me to buy something, like I'm assuming it might erode the deal structure, less cash up front, more on an earn, whatever the hell it might be. But like, there's a negative ramification for not having that story buttoned up. And yeah. there was my, my business partner, Matt was telling me um, on a recent uh, presentation we did, Peter. And so they sold, they rolled, he did 20 transactions and sold all for a very large amount last year. And he goes, when, after they had hired the investment banker, he's like, he got the, he had the memorandum back. He's like, holy crap. I really like the business we have because <laughs> like, yeah. it told yeah. the story in a way that he was not even able to like really yeah. articulate. You know, he was like more proud yeah. of everything that they were going to be talking about. <laughs> yeah. That's a good sign. That's a good sign when the you know banker puts a bunch of work into building the deck, building the summary of your business. You go as the CEO or the owner, you go and take a look at it, and you're like, you know what, this 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 Damn. sounds right. It looks good. <laughs> I'm proud of this. I can speak to this. You know, that's a that's a good sign that you know that the advisor has put in the work to um, you know to arrange the information and put the story around it in a way that's um, 
coherent. And that, 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 and that's valuable. It's really valuable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then we go into the outside of the, then the, so the two parts, you got the retainer, hourly fixed fee, whatever. Again, they can go check it out in the, in the survey. And then there's the, the big chunk, the success fee. And there's a lot of different, and this is probably what people are drooling all over because it's not very visible of like, is it 1%? (laughs) Is it 10%? I mean, every, a lot of people are more probably because of the sheer amount of volume that brokers do. People I think are pegged towards a lot of broker stories, but then again, we have a two thirds or two thirds to three fourths that are investment bankers that have a little bit more as the deals get bigger, probably the, the sliding scale. But again, you got this broken down. So why don't you kind of break down the different ways that the uh, success fee structure works? Yeah. So usually the way that the success fee structure works just at a very conceptual level is the percentage, uh, the success fee percentage is typically a percentage of the total transaction value that the business sells for the total enterprise value of the business. And there's a little bit of sort of, you know, splitting of hairs in terms of what total enterprise value is. But one way to think about total enterprise value of the business is just what is the business being acquired for net of any excess cash on the balance sheet? Mm-hmm. So, you know, business and, being we, and I'll, link, I'll link to our valuation podcast, Peter, that we did about enterprise equity net proceeds. So yeah, just did one, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I'll make sure that the listeners, if they're interested in that, but it, Total purchase price, and I'm curious, so I'll let you continue this, but when and how the uh, the intermediaries can get their money might be subject to different things too, which is interesting. Yeah, that's true. That's exactly right. So typically the success fee is calculated off the total purchase price of the transaction and the percentage of uh, the, the, the total purchase price is the typical structure for a success fee with a couple of you know, sort of boundaries and sort of additional. So as the success fee, as the size of the deal goes up, typically there can be like a sliding scale. Mm -hmm. So uh, for example, it could be that on the first $5 million or the first $10 million, the, you know, advisor is charging X percent. And then the next 10 million, they're charging, you know, Mm -hmm. half of that amount. And so as the size of the deal is getting bigger and bigger, the percent uh, on a blended basis that the advisor is charging is coming down. And that makes sense, right? If business mm-hmm. is being sold for $50 million, um, you know, you don't have the ability as an advisor to, to charge the same amount on a percentage basis than if the business is being sold mm-hmm. for, for $5 million. Kind of like asset management, right? When the wealth managers and say, Hey, mm-hmm. you got more money. Like, does yep. it make sense to charge $10 million or $100 million 1%? Because it's that's exactly the, right. the less, I mean, the work is not proportioned to the fee, right? That, that's right. And so, you know, what, what I think advisors tend to do sometimes is say, you know, this is our percentage fee structure, but, um, you know, no matter what, we have a minimum fee of X, right? And that in many cases may not be relevant for a particular transaction, but sometimes what an advisor, an advisor finds themselves in a position where, you know, they like the business, they have a nice relationship with the business owner, business owner is comfortable with them and would like to work with them. But the value of the business is maybe like kind of right on, right on the margin in terms of what the advisor wants to take on. Mm -hmm. And so the advisor will say, listen, let's do the following retainer and the following success fee percentage, you know, you know, 2% blended or 2% fixed fee or, 
you know, 5% on the first, you know, million and 4% on the second million and then 1% thereafter. And it blends to somewhere between maybe one and 2% for a $20 million transaction. But if for whatever reason, you know, it ends up being, you know, we, we can't get anything less than this, but you still decide you want to do the deal, right? My mm-hmm. minimum fee, my minimum fee is, is X. Mm-hmm. It's two two hundred k or two hundred fifty k or mm-hmm. you know five. Probably has a lot to do with the opportunity cost that that banker has to exactly. deal with. It, it yeah. has a lot to do with their opportunity cost, and so in some cases you'll see bankers say, "Listen, happy to do this deal with you. I think your business is worth probably somewhere in this range. If that's the case, we're all good. But if for whatever reason we can't get that outcome, and you still decide that you want to go ahead with the deal." That's totally fine, but you know, in the in that case, I just want to be clear. My sort of minimum fee mm-hmm. is here's the floor. Yep, exactly. Here's yep. the floor. Yeah. Can you? Um, super helpful, Peter. Can you? Would you mind just kind of giving the, the listeners that aren't looking at the the survey just a rough? You had mentioned some percentages, but like I know a lot of people, you know, they might if they're watching the public markets, they're watching like the mm-hmm. low did you know single digits, and then you go up to like the brokers, and it could be ten percent. I don't know. I just want to kind of just skim by kind of the rough ranges that people could expect. Yeah. And again, no, we're not holding anybody accountable any of this stuff, but just kind of putting a little bit of light to it. So I'd say, look, generally speaking, if you're, you know, if it's sort of a five to $50 million, you know, uh, transaction size, I would say that you're looking at a percentage success, percentage range of probably somewhere between one and a half and five to 6%. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's scaling down towards one and a half as you're getting up towards yeah. 30, 40, right. 50 so, million. It would it be the inverse or whatever? Yeah, it would be, it's it's yeah. scaling inversely with, you know, mm-hmm. the size of the, the purchase price. I think, you know, if you're running a small business and the business is selling for, you know, two, three, four million dollars, you are going to see certain brokers want to try and charge you, um, you know, 10% of the proceeds. I've seen, right? I've you seen know, it so, plenty of times, you know, man. No, no question about that. And, you know, it's it's kind of up to you as the business owner whether or not that high of a percentage is is worth it for you, right? You have to look at what is your net take home after you sell the business. How bad do you want to sell the business? What is your you know what is the the tax implications? You know, mm-hmm. and and look at that number. But I think that if you're charging much more than you know three, four, five percent of a forty, fifty, sixty million dollar deal, you're you know, I don't think that there's a particularly good reason for you to pay much more than that. Um, right, right, right. You know, well, it's, yeah. it's, and, and I think it was just interesting to note too. This is, you know, the broker, there's a certain just method too. Like, I, I you know, I think years and years ago, I used to get so like kind of disgruntled about like kind of the brokerage world, but like, you know, there's, there's a reason, man. Like if, if these people have like, if the business has got to go and it's got to get listed and got to be sold, like you said, there's an opportunity cost and it's a volume game, just like more like real estate versus someone that is, you know, doing only, a, if you're only going to do 15, <laughs> like you just said, like it's just yeah. a time opportunity cost of time. And I think there's just a certain amount of, I think that there should be a high desire to, as you grow the value, the value of your company, you're growing into more mature and sophisticated buyers and, and advisors as well. Yeah. I think you yeah. and I talked about that a little bit on the last show, but um, kind of is what it is, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think you just have to, the, the, the smaller the business, typically the, the less, the less tolerance there is by the business owner to pay an upfront retainer, right? Because they have a more limited amount of cash flow. If a business is generating three to $10 million in, 
in pre-tax earnings, it can very comfortably pay an M&A advisor a $10,000 or $5,000 monthly fee to mm-hmm. prepare the business for sale. It just, it the business owner may not want to do that, but the, the, the business is totally capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. If, if the business has, you know, $250,000 of seller discretionary earnings, you know, a quarter million dollars of sort of quote unquote EBITDA, you know, charging the business owner for a three to six month retainer of five to 10,000. I mean, that's, you know, that's like, that's 30% of that's 30, <laughs> that's the 30% of the EBITDA of the company that year. Right. Well, and then, it's, and a then really, goes, it's a lot, right? And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and so this very, very small businesses have a very hard time paying the retainer fees, which means that the brokers cannot typically invest a lot of time getting the business ready for sale. So then they kind of do, they kind of wing it to try mm-hmm. and get it ready because there's not enough retainer dollars in upside for them. When you have and the because, market, the market that typically then tells the business owner what it's worth just by pure inquiries of going, Nope, it's, yeah. there's not enough inquiries. Yeah. And then, you know, then, so the business is not typically very well prepared for a sale, which means that the failure rate goes up and the success rate goes down. So then the broker has, you know, a higher failure rate on every business that he or she is trying to sell. Mm -hmm. So when the failure rate goes up and the retainer dollars go down, the success fee rate goes up to try and compensate for that. And that's why you see these double digit brokerage fees for very Mm -hmm. small businesses. When, when the businesses get bigger, you, you know, you can really sort of get out of that trap, but when the businesses are really small, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I was say, like, this, is, this is what you and I've talked about in like multiple episodes that we've done together, which the more education we can put out there, hopefully we're helping people get out of that trap because it's even when it, when you think about the percentage, like if it's a 10% it, uh, transaction fee on the enterprise value of 5 million bucks. I mean, my God, I mean, that probably is a little bit high for that size, but like, yeah, it's going to be a, eating out of that person's retirement period, right? Because after yeah. a certain dollar amount, it's not retirement money. It's more like wealth generation, generational wealth, which, so I don't know. It's very interesting, man. Like 10 years ago, I had like this hot, hot second in that wealth management firm space. And like, you know, it's the weird, the people with no money have no help, but they need the help but the people with all the money have low fees. So it's just like, it's just this weird conundrum. So I think the whole point is to get your company ready. So that way you have more choices and, and scaling to a certain size will just help you get the help that you want too. It's a, in, in kind of going back to then what I had said earlier too, of like, how does this all then translate into like how the uh, advisor gets the money? And gets their fee yeah. too, because there's some creativity yeah. I think that people can have on that too, because mm-hmm. there's yeah. not always direct risk alignment, right? That's right. Yeah. So you know, so the retainers are typically paid on a you know a, a monthly basis or a quarterly basis, and it, you can see it in the report. You know, they're typically five to fifteen thousand dollar retainers per month. It's the way to just just roughly for a business mm-hmm. owner to just get their head around it. Um, that's kind of a typical range that you'd see. I'm sure there's more to the higher and there's some lower ones, but those are typically paid just, you know, in arrears or mm-hmm. maybe you pay prepay for a quarter's worth of work. The success fee is typically paid at closing subject to a set of um, kind of exceptions or, or negotiations. So one of the things that you can negotiate 
with the, you know, the fee agreement that you pay to an advisor is when do they get paid? And so let's say the business is, is being purchased for $10 million, but the cash that's being uh, delivered to the business owner at closing is $8 million. And there's $2 million, which is subject to an escrow holdback for some unknown liabilities or some tax vagaries, or it's getting held back in the form of an earnout because, mm-hmm. you know, part of the business just needs to prove itself over the next six months, over the next 12 months, maybe even over the next three years. I've seen three-year earnouts. Mm-hmm. And and so what you can do is, is, is structure your, uh, or at least attempt to structure your success fee payout on, on the cash that's actually trading hands. So if the business is being bought for $10 million, mm-hmm. the success fee at closing that you would pay to your uh, M&A advisor, if, if there's only $8.5 million that's changing hands at the initial closing, you would pay them out on $8.5 million and they would sit side by side with you um, so that if you earn the next $1.5 million, uh, when you earn that $1.5 million, they take their commensurate piece of that. And so you can essentially make the you know the, the payouts to the advisor structured in a way where they're getting paid in the same way that you're getting paid. I would say that you know there's there are reasonable arguments in both directions for whether or not you know that that's you know whether or not that's fair. You know I think a lot of advisors would say, listen, um, we put together a variety of transactions um, you know or options for you. You you know you chose this one. We successfully signed and consummated the transaction. The great majority of the economics were exchanged at the initial closing, and you know we're this earnout and this escrow, it's not, it's not, those are not really our, that's not really our work to do. You know, the earnout, the performance, they, of the they have business, no control over it, right? Right. I mean, they have no agents. They have no agency over that. And so yeah. I think you can, there, it's not like the advisors who argue with you there are, are, are bad, you know, and unfair, unscrupulous mm-hmm. men and women. I think if there's a reasonable argument from their perspective that their job is, is done, um, and I think that from the business owner's perspective, there's a reasonable argument to be made that, hey, I want to get the best deal I possibly can with the best partner I possibly can. And if you don't care about whether or not it's you know cash up front or whether it's an earnout because you're getting paid either way, we're not aligned, right? Mm-hmm. I want to get mm-hmm. you know as much as I can up front. And so the best way for us to be on the same page is for you to be aligned with me there. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why I say it's kind of like, they're both very reasonable arguments to make. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it kind of just comes down to, you know, it can come down to who's the tougher negotiator. It can come down to uh, who needs the, you know, who needs the help of the other more, you know, does the M&A advisor really want the assignment? Does they, do they really want to work with that client? Is that a really attractive client for them to serve? You know, is the M&A advisor, you know, in a dry spell with other, you know, other opportunities? There's all these sort of hidden, hidden, you know, data points that maybe influence how, mm-hmm. how, mm-hmm. how stiff and tense that negotiation can get. But I've seen a variety of outcomes there structured, and I don't think there's anything principally wrong with any of them. Dude, well, thank you very much for clarifying it like that. And, and, and I think you, you articulated it very well, Peter, because like, and by the way, like, this is what, again, I think what you're on the mission of and same thing with us is like the more we can educate, like you're both going to have some risk, right? Like, yeah, but like right. if you were, yeah. if you were my banker and you're saying, Hey Ryan, like I have two options in front of you. 
one's $9 million all cash. The other one's 5 million cash and then rolled equity and some earnout. And I decided to do the rolled equity and earnout. And yeah. like, well, what the hell, man? Like, yeah. So like, I, yeah. like, I think the, the yeah. best part is what the mission that you, you and I have continuously said we're on is like, if people can get educated and they can get two people that trust each other and say, okay, well, what's reasonable? Because like you said, it's not clear, but at least if if you're talking to someone that understands what the hell an earnout is versus escrow versus a promissory note and like how that works, then they can understand what that means to the other person that they're talking to yeah. versus getting all like, you know, because I can't even imagine, I bet you you've seen it, man, or and I know I have where the, the seller is hiring the banker, treats him like shit. And then that person that has probably got some resentment towards their client is then going to go represent them on the largest transaction. It's just like, yeah. you know, and you don't want either person to resent each other. So then you're just trying to like move forward in the way that makes the most amount of sense. Yeah. No, all those things are, are true. And, and um, you know, that's why I say there's nothing to me that's particularly black and white and right and wrong about that structure, but it, it definitely, you know, you illustrated a case in point where it really becomes very difficult, very uncomfortable for an M&A advisor, right? There's one deal where you can swing for the fences, but you get a lot less up front. And, you know, your advisor is is there to, to help you close a transaction. And, you know, they're not necessarily comfortable waiting for three years to see whether or not you, <laughs> you know, you hit, you hit a set of revenue and EBITDA marks that they're going to have no relationship to and no ownership and no agency over. So a lot of well, that's like the biggest issues too, even with sellers, it's like if they agree on an earnout and they have no control over what they're going to agree upon, it's the exact same concept, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, so, um, as I, as I think about, um, other things, and I don't know if this is in your study, but I know it's, uh, you know, you had something about breakup fees and stuff like that. Um, you can speak a little bit to that, but also in that same concept, uh, and topic, Peter is, um, exclusivity periods. I've heard mm-hmm. really good stories and really horrible stories about, you know, people getting, you know, hung up on that exclusivity period with the banker. Yeah. We're like, you know, like they, the, the, so the deal doesn't go through. Yeah. They like, you know, let's say there was the, uh, uh there was genuine intent to just keep running the company, but then there's an audit blue offer that happened six months later or something mm-hmm. like that. So like, how does, how does it all like maybe, maybe some of your comments around, if the deal doesn't go through and there is a breakup, kind of what things you should expect and what things you should look out for. There's a failed process for, you know, for selling a business could, could have, a, you know, it could happen at a lot of different stages, right? You could get nobody to even sign a, you know, a, an agreement in which case you just have a fully failed process. There's nobody who ultimately was willing to sign any letter of intent to buy the business from the buyer's perspective, um, that the seller found suitable for their purposes. And in those cases, there, there's no grounds whatsoever for like a, a breakup fee. I think the breakup fee that I think you're talking about is one in which the buyer or the seller negotiates as part of the letter of intent, negotiates for there to be a, a fee paid by one side or the other in the event that, you know, they decide not to, exactly. They decide not to proceed with the transaction, even though there could be one to be had, right? Correct. Even though there could be one or there's, you know, there appears to be no, you know, external event or materially adverse event that is, you know, is, 
derailing mm-hmm. the transaction. And so you can set it up so, you know, the seller can set it up so if the buyer signs this letter of intent, you know, they, you know, subject to the following clauses and, and, and other particulars, if they decide not to proceed with the transaction, they will owe the seller a breakup fee. And then in those cases, the advisor who represents the seller, it would, would also participate and get, you know, get some amount of that breakup fee and probably might get like a pretty significant amount of it. Maybe just because the amount is so much smaller usually. And so, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know, 20% of that fee or something like that. Um, we can all, of course, we and then bring there's, up, I was just going to say, of course, I just had, I just had to bring up the notorious uh, breakup of the Twitter deal going on yeah. right now. Like it, yeah. it's not, it's not the market we're talking about, but it, it it's highlighting an, an example of it at least. Yeah. I mean, they're trying to, they're not even focusing on the breakup fee. They're focusing on, on, on compelling Elon to buy the company, you know, and to, you know, to enforce the terms of the merger agreement. Uh, and their, their argument is that, you know, there is no set of escape hatches that he can claim are, you know, legally defensible to, to not proceed with the transaction, but a breakup fee is a totally different deal. You're saying the deal's off, but I owe you X. Wasn't it a billion dollar breakup fee? So that's what it was talked about at the beginning, right? Yes, there is, I think, roughly a billion dollar breakup fee associated with that. Now, the buyer can also create a a breakup fee uh, that's contractually uh, obliging the seller. And in those cases, the buyer is doing that uh, or is attempting to do that largely for... It's usually because, you know, they don't want to do all of the work associated with confirming the diligence of the business and going through all the diligence process, spending a lot of time and money, and then having the business owner say, eh, nah, never mind, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I've, I've decided I want to keep running the company. Um, and so they want to create a financial disincentive for the seller mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. decide to have cold feet and just walk away. And I think, you know, one of the other reasons that they might do that is if they feel like, you know, the board of the company is not aligned or something like that. So if there's like a family that owns a business and, you know, Tom doesn't want to sell it and Bobby really wants to sell it and Margaret, you know, is not sure and Deborah is, you know, uh, yeah, hundred no, percent, man. Nowhere to be found. <laughs> <laughs> I got so many of these scenarios going on right now. It's just hilarious. Uh, oh. So, if buyers sort of get a sense that the voting stock of the business is sort of wobbly on 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 doing the deal, sometimes they'll they'll do that. But there's not a lot of breakup fee action in the lower middle market. It's not a particularly common right. uh, aspect of a, of a term sheet or of a letter of intent. I think most sides view it as like a cost of doing business. And, you know, it's just something that they sort of Part plan of for. Yeah. But then as, yeah. as we're kind of getting short, because I know we're going to wrap up here in a couple of seconds. Um, but like, then there's the exclusivity. And I've just heard horror stories where people have forced an exclusivity when someone like they hadn't talked in like five to seven months or whatever it was. So like maybe to speak to the like yeah. exclusive, you know, like that the exclusivity period and what that means and what your, what your thoughts yeah. are. Look, I think leaving aside like the legal particulars, which I think should be secondary to the principles here, here, here's my take on it. And this is just my point of view, but if you retain an M and a advisor and you go through a process and you 
decide not to consummate the transaction with a buyer that is part of the process that the M&A advisor shepherds you through. And less than 12 months later, you do a deal with that very same firm. Mm -hmm. That doesn't smell very good. Like that, that seems a little... That seems a little bit shady. Um, you and I and were just talking about our little kids. That's something you know, that we would tell our little kids. Yeah. It's not, that's not fair, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not, you know, that that's just not, I'm sure there may be some circumstances, but it's just, they're, in my view, the right thing to do, even if you have the high ground from a legal exclusivity period. The right thing to do as the business owner would be to at least provide some form of consideration to to the advisor in in a case like that. That's really what the advisor, a, a good advisor, is really just trying to protect against that. You know, where you're mm-hmm. you're you're yep. they're doing all this work. You're they're meeting with you're you're meeting a bunch of buyers by way of them and by way of a process that they are orchestrating for you. It's not necessarily all their relationships, but they're part of this whole process. And then the exclusivity period, you know, expires because the transaction takes longer for whatever reason. And then, you know, a couple of quarters later, you do a deal with with one of those firms. I think that it's reasonable for advisors to be protecting themselves against that. Mm-hmm. I think if you decide to keep running the business and, you know, you don't get a great offer, you don't get an offer that you want, can't come to an agreement, you decide to go back to work, start running the business again, think about building the business to its next level of scale and, you know, call it, I don't know. It's okay. Eight months later, whatever. (sighs) Yeah. I mean, I'd say, I I think it is. I I, I think you got to be on the other side of 12 months, you know, now if it's a new party, that's what I was going to say. Like, it's, it's it, almost like if, if it's a new party, I, I, I think that that's different. You know, okay. I it, that's, good, different. That, that's a very good clarification. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. Everything you said about that first scenario makes a bunch of sense. Like I said, I would tell my kids that doesn't sound fair in general, but yeah. then also like if they, if no deal is had, if you tried to sell my company and I didn't, there was no deal to be had. And then eight months later, someone that I met on the golf course wanted to buy my company. I had nothing to do with you, Peter. Like, I've watched people who try to get their claws into that. And it's like, also, I yeah. kind of feel this, I don't know if it's similar. I, or... I agree. I, I, I would say it's reasonable for the M&A advisor to feel like they are covered in the event of a transaction for, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 18 months with a party that was part of the process that they went through Makes with sense. you. Mm-hmm. Anybody who was not part of that process, you know, First of all, anybody who was not part of the original process, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to get all the way to the finish line and do a deal with them for at least six months. It just takes that long to get a new party ramped up on your mm-hmm, story and, mm-hmm. and the transaction. So I would say that if it's if it's not a party that was part of the original deal, you know, I think that, you know. Yeah. I, yeah everything I, I you said I, just makes sense. I think yeah, that, it's yeah I, I think that that's pretty fair. I think that that's pretty fair game. I think... Um, yeah, I think both sides should feel free to 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 proceed as they see fit in in those circumstances for sure. Have a grown up conversation. What a concept, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I definitely um, definitely think that. I do think the the other form of exclusivity that is very important for business owners to think about, which has nothing to do with the investment bank or the M and A advisor. It has everything to do with how long do they go under exclusivity with the buyer, right? Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Typically, a buyer in the lower middle market will want to have 60 to 90 days 
to really vet your business. Mm-hmm. So that, that's just another really important thing to negotiate with the buyer. You're not negotiating that with the M&A advisor. You're negotiating mm-hmm. that with the buyer. But once you once you go under exclusivity with a buyer, you're not allowed to talk to any other buyers typically. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's a very, very critical thing to negotiate. You do not want to give a Pretty buyer. too, isn't it? Very common, very common, but you really want to be very tenacious in terms of how you negotiate that and, um, and which buyer you're going into exclusivity with and which buyer and how much time and, you know, is there a right for them to renew that exclusivity period? And do you need to be, um, party to that renewal or is it unilateral? But, Mm -hmm. you know, you want to be under exclusivity for as little of a period as possible as a business Mm -hmm. owner. So um, one last question, man, is, and I don't think it was in your survey at all, but I'm curious on like uh, what your general experience or exposure is to like a business owner, because this has usually been my recommendation is like a business owner that want, you know, gets an out of blue offer, which has been happening like crazy, obviously for the last couple of years and doesn't want to run the process themselves, but doesn't want to take it to a controlled auction and a bit, you know, a bid with a bunch of other people. How, have you, do you have any kind of data sets as far as like reduced fees or anything like that, that uh, intermediaries will have to lead that process, but then kind of skinny it down because they're not going to the general market? Um, I don't have any data there, like real data to, to offer. And so, you know, it would, my answer would be really just random, yeah, anic- just random, it, random experiences, which is, it, I, I yeah, it would really be anecdotal there. Uh, you know, again, I think you have to remember, you have to remember the position that the intermediary is in when they're working for you. If you get an unsolicited offer from one buyer and you're not running a process as a seller. And so you say to the intermediary, I want you to represent me, but like, I want you to give me relief on the fee because I already brought the buyer in and, you know, da, da, you know, you weren't running a pro- you as the seller weren't running a process. There's only one buyer at the table, right? They haven't had any opportunity to do the prep work to sort of, you know, bring your business up to, you know, uh, you know, uh, to a condition where they would run uh, mm-hmm. a process. And so I think from their perspective, it's just sort of like, listen, this is a, you know, this is a pretty, this is a, you're threading a real needle here. If this one buyer walks away, we've got no plan B. We haven't done the work. You haven't done the work, you know? And so. So there. You just, you just, you have to consider their position, right? Yeah. And if yeah, they yeah, say, yeah, sure, yeah. we're happy to step in and sort of negotiate this for you and, and work on this with you. I think you need to help them you know, help them feel like it's, it's worth their while. Cause they're taking a lot of, uh, a, a lot of risk because the deal doesn't have really any plan B's in it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you can go back to the, to the buyer who gave you an unsolicited bid and say, you know, listen, we're happy to work through this with you, but we're not going to give you exclusivity. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're going to hire an advisor uh, and that advisor will be running point on this transaction so that I can keep doing my day job and, and running the business. And if it works great, but you know, we've also hired this advisor so that we can, you know, set up some alternatives, some, some plan mm-hmm. B's to the extent it doesn't work out. That's a, that, you know, now, now sometimes what ends up happening is the buyer who gave you the unsolicited bid says, Oh, if you're going to run a process, we're out of here. Right. Well, and, the, and yeah. you know, and, and in that case, you know, I think it was actually good because you kind of smoked, smoked out, you know, where the buyer was at and how serious they were about buying. I want to add company. one caveat, caveat to what you just said, though. 
If you're confident that you have any idea what the hell your company is worth, why it's worth what it is, and you know you've got options and you're not trying to think you're going to get one over on a buyer that's going to randomly give you a bunch of money. Because I think yeah. that's a, the general narrative of like, oh, yeah. Peter's going to give me a bucket yeah. of money and I just have to like <laughs> trick him before I, before he figures out this is a pile yeah. of crap. And then, yeah. you know, so I think you, to, your, <laughs> to your point is if if you're confident, I mean, just how how assured you are when you, with your comment, that's the confidence that we want everybody to have. <laughs> that's definitely true. You know, it's it's very hard to trick professional buyers. Of, of There's a lot of business owners that think that they, like, oh, like, they don't know that this is like, I'm like, no, like, there was one guy I was telling Peter, I'm like, he's like, yeah, we just got to run this deal. because I'm like, dude, the buyer's not just going to accidentally write you a check for $30 million. Yeah. Like, it's actually worth that if they're willing to pay that. So like, it's just, it, yes, you're, it's weird that you've never had $30 million, but you actually have an illiquid asset. So it's just this perception of value, man. It just, it's so different. Look, it happens, right? I mean, there, there are, you know, there are these, you know, Ponzi schemes that, that, you know, that, that work or, you know, sort of these, but it's a very bad bet as a business owner to try and uh, think you're going to sort of hoodwink a professional buyer, um, particularly a professional buyer. It's just very hard. Mm. They're, they're repeat actors and you're a one-time actor. And so usually they have the experience advantage over you. Um, so yeah, tough. That's a tough game to win. Peter, this is, I I just enjoy our conversations a lot, man. And I I appreciate you and what Axial is doing and all the information that you guys are putting out. Um, Right back at you. Yeah, man. I just, I would recommend everybody just go to your guys' site. There's more material, sign up for the newsletter. And, you know, any last parting words, man, I know you've been on a bunch, so I've asked you the uh, intentional I, word. And I guess what I'd say is, you know, for those who are listening, you know, I know that I'll just, you know, I just want to endorse what you guys are doing um, at, you know, intentional growth and with the fractional CFO program. I, I would say that one of the probably the biggest challenges associated with small businesses having a successful transaction event is just their level of financial preparedness. I think, it, it matters so much. I mean, yes, I think choosing great M&A advisors matters a lot. And yes, I think having reasonable expectations for the value of your company and all those things matter a lot. But I, I'd say that the, the X's and O's of a successful exit are just not in place if you do not have fundamental financial preparedness, just basic books and records, good, clean financial statements. And so I think so much of the dysfunction of small business M&A is not necessarily a function of M&A advisor this or exclusivity period that or all these things that people point the fingers at. It's did the business owner prepare their business so that it could be financially understood by an arm's length buyer? And if the yeah. answer to that is yes, a, a lot of stuff kind of flows relatively yeah. positively from that. And if the answer to that is no, everything good that comes after that process is sitting on a house of cards. And so, um, I just, um, think that Thank you. that's, that's, awesome, that's, man. I, su- I that's super that. important work. And I, <laughs> I really hope that, you know, over the next hundred years, we can get every good business owner to, to take, um, you know, to, to make an investment in good financial preparedness one way or another with a fractional CFO or a good bookkeeper or whatever it takes, just, mm. you know, don't, uh, kick the can and cut the corner there as a business owner. Um, it just, it's really the kiss of death. So that's all. Peter, man, uh, I appreciate yeah. that. That means a lot to me, man. That's, uh, we've placed our bets in the right area. It sounds like, <laughs> so thank you so much. For, <laughs> thank yeah. you so much for coming on the show, Peter. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Ryan. It's great to be here. 
Well, I hope that episode was valuable for you and you walked away going, okay, I think I have enough information to ask the right questions. You're not going to be an expert on you know analyzing five different in- intermediaries, brokers and investment bankers, but hopefully you've got enough questions to arm yourself where if you're getting answers that you don't feel good about, you have an idea of what the range of possibilities are. And I would also suggest that you go check out the actual uh, survey and report, which we've got a link to in the show notes if you want to dive into the data. And again, if you want to dive further into this material, check out our Intentional Growth Bootcamp. It's at Bethel University in Minnesota on November 2nd and 3rd. $5,000 for the first ticket, half off for tickets after that if you want to be bring a key executive or business partner. And we have a bunch of material in the curriculum and a, and a little movie or like a you know minute-long trailer on the website at arcona.io under the bootcamp page. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And we are going to be diving into acquisition entrepreneurs and search funds on the next episode with my dear friend, Walker Dybel, who is the author of Buy Them Build. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And I will see you next week.